Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom. Thanks, everybody, for being here, and thanks for being so kind to me. It's an honor to be here. As we grapple with the current national nightmare, what's good? What's out there that you appreciate? What is a ripple of hope? to borrow from Bobby Kennedy. What is the next women's suffrage as we celebrate that, as we recognize that? And why do I say what's the next women's suffrage? I don't mean in terms of its scope or its subject matter. What I mean is when women's suffrage passed, it didn't pass because Congress decided that would happen. It happened because state by state, including in my state, trying five times, finally passing it until finally there was a national movement. People working locally. What's happening in your local community that you're proud of? What's happening in your community that you're thankful for? What's some silver lining amidst dark clouds that give us some hope to bend the artificial towards justice, to make democracy work a little bit better rather than a lot worse? Another question. How should we pick a presidential candidate? How should we pick a president? I don't mean to ask you who is the presidential candidate you prefer. I hope that that is premature. But how should we evaluate it? What questions should we ask? What criteria should we use? How should we rate that criteria? What should be most important? What do you think? As we start formulating our arguments, rather than just picking based on loyalty, tying that loyalty to our own identity, somebody then making a case for a different candidate, thereby feeling like it's an affront to our own identity, how do we want to pick a president? What questions should we ask? Elizabeth Warren did a town hall with MSNBC. Here is one question she was asked. It was about the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is the amendment that blocks any public money from funding abortions, from funding the ability for women to choose. Let's play that clip and hear her answer. There was an interesting thing that happened today. The former Vice President Joe Biden mm -hmm. came out and said that he would not support repealing the Hyde Amendment. That is a provision of federal law that bars the federal government from funding abortion services from Medicare, Medicaid, and others. You disagree with that position. Yes, I do. Is Joe Biden wrong? Yes. Here's how I look at this. I've lived in an America where abortions were illegal. Yeah. And understand this. 
women still got abortions. Now, some got lucky on what happened, and some got really unlucky on what happened. But the bottom line is they were there. And under the Hyde Amendment, under every one of these efforts to try to chip away or to push back or to get rid of Roe versus Wade, understand this, women of means will still have access to abortions. Who won't will be poor women, will be working women, will be women who can't afford to take off three days from work, will be very young women, will be women who've been raped, will be women who have been molested by someone in their own family. We do not pass laws that take away that freedom from the women who are most vulnerable. So that was one question. And I appreciate policy questions. What are the questions you want us to compile? I'm going to start compiling a list of questions that I really hope we use to evaluate presidential candidates. We have a good sense of who the Republican nominee is going to be. Maybe he's not. Maybe there is a set of Republicans of conscience in the U.S. Senate who decides that the rule of law should matter in the execution of the duties of the president of the United States. And perhaps this president doesn't fulfill his term. Perhaps there's some sliver of a chance that Bill Weld, former Massachusetts governor, governor of Massachusetts when I lived in Massachusetts, perhaps he will find daylight beyond a few percentage points, beyond a dozen percentage points in the Republican primary. But I think we have a pretty decent idea who the Republican nominee is going to be. There's huge discussion about who the Democratic nominee is going to be. What I want to start doing is compiling what we think are the most important questions to evaluate, either to ask directly of the presidential candidates or to understand for ourselves that we want to get answered whether or not the best way to get the question answered is to ask the candidate directly, to recognize that we're in this together, that we've got to be shoulder to shoulder figuring out how to make democracy work a little bit better. What is your thought about how we should change how we elect a president. I know for so many Tom Hartman listeners that has changed the Electoral College. Well, Oregon just became the 16th state to pass the Interstate Popular Vote Compact, getting it up to 196 out of the 270 votes that are necessary to become president in the Electoral College, meaning that 196 electoral votes worth of states, 16 states now, have said that whoever wins the popular vote, they get our votes. Now, of course, those are blue states who have entered the compact. But nonetheless, that bill had been bottled up in Oregon for years. Senate president had been blocking it. And there, very often, where you'll get Democratic parties that like the effort of worry that small states won't have a chance. Another question you might think about is, how should we ensure that small states still get attention in a national popular vote world? What are things that we should be doing to make sure that it isn't all about being in New York, Texas, Florida, and California in a national popular vote world, recognizing that all of our policies will have costs and benefits? Questions on the table, including, what are you thankful for? What we know about gratitude is it makes our lives better. What we know about gratitude is that it can increase life expectancy, improve sleep. For the person not who receives the gratitude, but the person who feels it. So let's make sure in our complaint we also include some positivity and love to cite Van Jones. If we're part of a love army, well, let's share some. What's good? What's good out there? You can share that. And also, 
What should we be asking presidential candidates or how should we be evaluating presidential candidates? What's most important to you? I know climate change will come up. Presumably a higher federal minimum wage will come up. What else? What are things that you worry that too much of major media will miss when evaluating presidential candidates? You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I am Jefferson Smith sitting in for Tom Hartman. We appreciate you. On the line is Janet from Bainbridge. I would like to ask each candidate for president what they personally, with their team of powerful campaign people, are doing to help local candidates for the National Congress to campaign in their states as people who will be partners to the candidate for president when they become president. That's helpful. But some of the obvious stuff is, well, I'll make appearances, I'll make some contributions. Could you imagine your dream answer or things that you would hope to hear from presidential candidates as they try to recognize, as they recognize that they're not going to be able to pass their agenda merely by being the president? Yes. I would think that they could do this in every state that they are campaigning in and name those people in that particular state that they would like to have in partnership in the Congress. That's a great one, because they've got the megaphone right there. And if they use it recognizing that we need to be movement builders, not only personal vote getters, then they have a chance of making a candidate a little bit more famous, making their fundraising and volunteer raising a little bit easier by merely uttering a couple words. Oh, yes. Yeah. And especially because Mrs. Pelosi is so completely in charge of the not impeaching, and because the DCCC has decided that only sitting candidates will get funding from them. It seems very strange that there is a lock on who is allowed to campaign for the House and Senate. It's such a tricky thing because the job, well, at least two schools of thought, right? If you're a caucus leader, if you're Speaker of the House, for instance, two people could answer the same question in two different ways. One person said, well, the job of the Speaker, and they're right in that this is how the Speaker gets to be the Speaker, is to protect their members, is to advocate for the interests of their members. Someone else would say, well, the Speaker of the House, that is actually the constitutionally recognized position. The Speaker of the House should be their job is to advocate for the interests of the American people. And one can make a pretty good case for both of those cases. Well, I would like to just really disagree with you. Please. Because I believe that Speaker Pelosi is elected by her local constituents. It is true that she has built a team that she likes to be working with. However, she also is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, which is the one agency in the entire government that has the constitutional power to decide to investigate the President of the United States. Impeachment in the Congress means investigating, gather the evidence, put it together in a package, make it available to the American public. That's what her responsibility is right now. And she's saying, oh no, we have to wait until the public wants us to do this. That's not what her job is. 
Her job is to appoint as the prosecuting attorney the person to gather the evidence to present the argument that the president should be indicted, which is what impeachment means. And I know we could make the rest of the show about impeachment. We probably will. You probably noticed, Janet. Thank you so much for calling. And I didn't hear a disagreement there, but I do know that people, even reasonable people, do disagree with what how they would define the role. Heck, somebody else might say that it is to advocate for the constituents, as you said, that she has in San Francisco. And she sort of has multiple jobs, perhaps. But I really appreciated your point that what you hope presidential candidates will do is elucidate, is say what they are doing locally to help candidates for Congress, including naming those candidates, and really appreciate that feedback. Take care, Janet. Dave, you are on the line from St. Paul. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, hi, Jefferson. Uh, I've been waiting for this question. What I'd like to know, should we be so lucky as to have a viable candidate that wins, will they break precedent with all previous administrations since Reagan that I can recall and prosecute the sins of the previous administration. Yeah. All right. (laughs) You would like them to, from the tone of your voice, I'm guessing that. Yes, I would. I would like some accountability in the uh, upper echelons of our government. It is tricky, isn't it? The the constitutionalist in me, the order of law, the rule of law person in me was not pleased, was horrified at chance of lock her up about Hillary Clinton, the idea of locking up one's political enemies. But where I see some merit in your question is that if you have a Department of Justice rule that says we won't prosecute a sitting president, And if you have a norm, and I'll use that word instead of principle because I think it's more of a norm than a principle. And if you have a norm that after the person is done being president, they don't get prosecuted. Well, what you just said was the president will never get prosecuted. And sometimes for some things in the scope of one's duties, you know, you might want to have some leeway. You don't want to put every president up for criminal charges for a a decision that somebody might disagree with. But at some level, if a president's entirely above the law, which that set of dual principles or dual norms or dual rules would mean, you got a real good point. Thank you, Dave. We're taking people's questions. We'll take yours. How should we pick a president? How should we evaluate a president? What questions should we ask, either asking that candidate or ask whatever facts we can find to answer? This is Tom's show. I'm Jeff. Hi, for our book club today, we're reading from Bernie Sanders' new book, Where We Go From Here, Two Years in the Resistance. This is from the introduction. During my campaign for president in 2016, I stated over and over again that the future of our country was dependent upon our willingness to make a political revolution. I stress the real change never occurs from the top down. It always happens from the bottom up. No real change in American history, not the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement, or any other movement for social justice has ever succeeded without grassroots activism, without millions of people engaged in the struggle for justice. That's what I said when I ran for president. That's what I believe now. That's what I've been working to accomplish over the last several years. At a time of massive and growing income and wealth inequality, as our nation moves closer and closer to an oligarchic form of society, we need an unprecedented grassroots political movement to stand up to the greed of the billionaire class and the politicians they own. And the good news is we're making progress. People in every region of our country are standing up and fighting back against the most dishonest and reactionary president in the history of the republic. 
in state after state, they're also taking on establishment politicians who are more concerned about protecting their wealthy campaign contributors than they are with the needs of the middle class and the working people they're supposed to represent. We're making progress when millions of people in every state in the country take to the streets for the Women's March in opposition to Trump's reactionary agenda. We're making progress when an unprecedented grassroots movement elects a young African-American as mayor of Birmingham, Alabama. We're making progress when tens of thousands of Americans turn out at rallies and town hall meetings to successfully oppose the Republican effort to throw 32 million people off health insurance. We're making progress when governors and local officials announce in response to student demands tuition-free public colleges and universities. We're making progress when over the past two years, hundreds of first-time candidates of every conceivable background run for school boards, city council, state legislature, and Congress, and many of them win. The good news is that the American people are far more united than the media would like us to believe. They get it. They know that over the past 40 years, despite a huge increase in worker productivity, the middle class has continued to shrink while the very rich have become very much richer. They know that for the first time in the modern history of the United States, our kids will likely have a lower living standard than us. The bad news is that instead of going forward together, demagogues like Trump win elections by dividing us. The bad news is that too many of us are getting angry at the wrong people. It was not an immigrant picking strawberries at $8 an hour who destroyed the economy in 2008. It was the greed and illegal behavior of Wall Street. It was not transgender people who threw millions of workers out on the street as factories were shut down all across the country. It was profitable multinational corporations in search of cheap labor abroad. Our job, for the sake of our kids and grandchildren, is to bring our people together around a progressive agenda. Are the majority of people in our country deeply concerned about the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality that we are experiencing? You bet they are. Do they believe that our campaign finance system is corrupt and enables the rich to buy elections? Overwhelmingly, they do. Do they want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage and provide pay equity for women? Yes, they do. Do they think that the very rich and large corporations should pay more in taxes so that all of our kids can have free tuition at public universities and colleges? Yep. Do they believe that the United States should join every other major country and guarantee health care as a right? Yes, again. Do they believe climate change is real? you got to be kidding. Are they tired of the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, falling apart at the seams with roads, bridges, water systems, wastewater plants, airports, rails, levees, and dams either failing or at risk of failing? Who isn't? Further, a majority of the American people want comprehensive immigration reform and a criminal justice system that is based on justice, not racism or mass incarceration. Today, what the American people want is not what they're getting. In fact, under Republican leadership in the House, Senate, and White House, they are getting exactly the opposite of what they want. The American people want a government that represents all of us. Instead, they're getting a government that represents the interests and extremist ideology of wealthy campaign contributors. They want environmental policies that combat climate change and pollution and that will allow our kids to live on a healthy and habitable planet. Instead, they're getting executive orders and legislation that push more fossil fuel production, more greenhouse gas emissions, and more pollution. They want a foreign policy that prioritizes peacemaking. Instead, they're getting increased military spending and growing hostility to our long-term democratic allies. They want a nation in which all people are treated with dignity and respect and where we continue our decades-long struggle to end discrimination based on race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and nation of origin. Instead, they have a president who seeks to win political support by appealing to those very deep-seated prejudices. During the last several years, I've worked hard in Washington, but I've also traveled to 32 states in every region of our country. I've seen the beauty, strength, and courage of our people. 
I've also seen fear and despair. I've talked to people with life-threatening illnesses in West Virginia who worry about what will happen to them or their loved ones if they lose the health insurance that keeps them alive. I've talked to young immigrants, dreamers in Arizona, who are frightened to death about losing their legal status and being deported from the only country they have ever known. I talked to a single mom, a young single mom in Nevada, worried about how she can raise her daughter on $10.45 an hour. I talked to retirees and older workers in Kansas who are outraged that as a result of congressional legislation, they could lose up to 60% of the pensions they paid into and were promised as deferred compensation for a lifetime of hard work. Bernie Sanders, where we go from here. I'm on book tour this week, traveling around the country, and I got to tell you, sitting on airplanes for hours, I mean, I've got one collection of flights that's running over 11 hours, just devastates your back. And that's when you want a good pain, or at least I want a good pain reliever uh, that is potent and has anti-inflammatory properties, but isn't going to get me high and isn't toxic and, and, uh, and isn't going to get me addicted. And CBD oil is it. New Leaf Naturals makes the best CBD oil in my experience that you can find. It's nuleafnaturals.com. And right now, if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you'll get 30% off and free shipping. That's a big deal. 30% off and free shipping. Go to newleafnaturals.com to get the highly concentrated, 100% organic, no additional additives grown right here in the U.S. New Leaf Naturals, CBD oil, newleafnaturals.com, nuleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place. That's newleafnaturals.com. And use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get your 30% discount and your free shipping. New Leaf Naturals, nuleafnaturals.com. How should we pick a president? On what criteria should we choose? What questions should we ask? I'm not rushing ahead to who would we pick. There might be examples of people who uh, can illustrate the principle, maybe even past examples. But what are some of the key criteria? One just came out last night, not necessarily a criteria, but a question. One difference, because there's so much agreement, of course, anybody going after the Democratic nomination well, they'll all agree they want to defeat Donald Trump. They'll all agree that he's part of, they'll pretty much all agree he's part of a coalition of corruption. They'll agree on any number of things. They'll all agree in general terms, a woman's right to choose, but there was one difference that came to light, which is Joe Biden saying that he would not support a repeal of the Hyde Amendment, a repeal of the rule that prohibits federal money from paying for services that include abortion services. And Elizabeth Warren saying in very heartfelt words that who that would, who the Hyde Amendment hurts are not wealthy women who will have a chance to pay for a safe abortion regardless of the legal structure, but will be working women and poor women. And the most vulnerable will be most impacted. What are other places that we think could help either on policy or administration or track record, or the criteria of your choosing that you think we should use to pick a president. So much of what is used is just attention itself, electability itself, the self-fulfilling prophecy. If someone's famous and they have a bunch of dough, the political apparatus likes them, and therefore they're just sort of famous for being famous. I'm not accusing any particular candidate of that. But lest we just reward reward, how should we actually pick a president? We're taking your calls. Current leader in Most Patient Listener Award, John from Wayzata, Minnesota, I think. John, hello, sir. 
You got that right. It's YZ in Minnesota. And thank you for taking my call. I actually would like to see the candidates kind of follow. I wanted Chair Brown to run because of how he gets elected in Ohio. And I think it's a good model for our candidates. I want the candidates to say, this is what the Republicans do and how it hurts you. This is what I want to do and how it helps you. For instance, I don't want them to talk about, hey, Medicare for all. Well, what does that mean? This the Republicans support the health insurance industry being in there. It costs you money. It costs you quality of care. Medicare for all does this. What are the destructive parts of what the Republicans are doing? What are the positive parts of what the candidate wants to do? Very specific. That's how Sheriff Brown keeps winning in a red state. He doesn't count conservative positions. He's a very progressive senator, yet he gets conservative Republicans in Ohio to vote for him. So he's getting both sides voting for him because he's explaining why it benefits the voter. That's helpful. That's helpful. Thank you so much, John. Liz from Redmond, Washington. What do you think we should be doing to evaluate presidential candidates? What are you paying attention to? Well, actually, last night I read that Jay Inslee, while he's been pushing the climate change and making that the focus of information, and I read that the Democratic Party is trying to put a squash on that. He wants that to be part of the debate. And they're saying, no, I'm not quite sure of all of the information. But I think that's considering what all the scientists are saying or what we've been hearing, that should be absolutely top of the list. I mean, if we want the Earth to survive or not. If if we care about things like life on this planet, if we prioritize actually having children, grandchildren, human beings living in this particular place, and by this place, we mean the earth, then it might be nice to prioritize climate change. I'm not saying you're being unreasonable, Liz, but you might be asking a lot. Uh Also, I'm really upset about, as a debate, that they allow the opposition to whoever's speaking at the time to cut in and talk over the Interesting. And can they turn off their mic so that we can see their lips, but we don't hear them? It's good. I want to capture that question and offer my thoughts. I want to make sure we keep the lines open for people with presidential questions, but I want to remember that, Liz. It's a good question about how debate should be conducted. Some would say it's too sterile if you turn off everybody's mic. Others would say it's too interruptive. Otherwise, it's a good question, but really hear you on climate change. And yeah, according to Jay Inslee, at the very least, the DNC has said they don't want a climate-focused debate. That is the focus, has been the focus of his campaign, and you're in Washington, his home state. Here'd be my thing. If you have a chance to interact, I've met Jay. I met him years ago when I was a young activist and he was really nice to me and I still have fond, still have gratitude, just a human being like anybody else. I'm still grateful for his kindness then. But I do hope that he'll be asked the question about the transportation choices that the Pacific Northwest is making and the highway expansions that are happening that he has real ability to impact, the kind of decision we're going to have to start doing differently as a country. And I hope that this will be a moment of reflection for some of those state decisions that are happening in the Northwest, which of course abuts my state. But Liz, thank you so much for calling. Thank you. Appreciate it. Pierre from Brookings, Oregon, you also want to plug climate change. Any particular angle? Yeah, the angle I'm emphasizing is the candidate or candidate for the nomination should loudly, clearly, and repeatedly say that the United States needs to commit to combating climate change on a scale commensurate with what happened 
in the mobilization for World War II. Yeah, something akin to the Green New Deal. So one is just sort of their tone, and I don't just mean their tone, but like, are they willing to speak general truth? Is there any particular specific, and it's not required, but I'm curious, is there any particular specific and it's not required, but I'm curious, is there any particular specific that you would use as a bellwether for that or use to evaluate whether they're serious? I think so much of this is dependent on energy. You know, we are, the way elections work in our country now is we see, we hear, we react. And that person needs to be really 100% committed, and that will show through. Yeah. And again, you know, if they say it's got to be like happened in World War II, where all industry gets behind it, the financial institutions back it, and they can certainly hit the climate change angle, but they can also mention things like this is the kind of thing domestic industry needs building out alternative energy and renewable energy sources and technology is going to be a huge shot in the arm to our economy. So do it not only to save the planet, but do it for selfish reasons as well. Pierre, thanks so much. Pat, you're on the line from Yakima, Washington. What do you think we need to be doing to evaluate presidential candidates? How are you picking? Okay, so there's so many things, but sure. what I would ask is if this person becomes president, how will they solve the problem of isolation? So, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren use town halls, and in those they project this caring and the ability to listen to people. And Cory Booker is famous because he went door to door. So here's the thing. How will this president, this person as president, know what each voter is experiencing. How will they know what is working for that voter? That's it. That's helpful. Anything that feels truest to you about how a candidate, how a human being running for the pursuit of political power should be evaluating people's lives, being in touch with people's lives. Polling information is, of course, one way. But you said door-to-door, you said town hall meetings. Do you have a favorite? Okay, so here's the thing. The mayor of South Bend, he says, you know, people call it, pick up the phone and call me. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing. Ultimately, you want to know what's good for you. Yeah. You want to know that you can write or text or something and tell them exactly what is happening. Hey, you know, I have somebody in Puerto Rico and they're dying because they can't get anything. Yeah. Thanks so much, and really appreciate that feedback. Terry, on from Free Speech TV from Ventura, California. How you doing? Hi, Jefferson. I so appreciate the manner in which you ask questions. Do a great job, okay? Thanks. Jefferson, my question would be, first of all, we've lived overseas, and I've watched how leaders are elected in other nations. Example, uh, when watching the French elections, one thing that they do in their debate setups is it's not very structured. They give a topic and they let that candidate speak without being structured for as much time as they need. Can you imagine how repetitive Donald Trump would be if you gave him too much time? But my question, the heart of my question is, my part of the question is proposed is the process. You look at long periods of the presidents that have been elected in the United States. We had an era of presidents that weren't rated very highly in terms of their 
command of the office, the policies they advocated. Uh, we had a whole string of lousy presidents after uh, Madison and Monroe that are not looked on as <laughs> very fit. We had a string of presidents that were of very low caliber in the 1880s, 1890s, many of them corrupt. We had a whole series of presidents that aren't highly regarded in uh, the 1920s and 1910s, and now we have 45. Something's wrong with the process, and I suspect it's the process. First of all, we have a media that works for its own interests and is unregulated and has their own means of... Yeah, in addition to the media, is there one other you think is the biggest process challenge? Is it the fact that we have direct election of presidents itself, or is it on the other side, the Electoral College for you? Is it campaign finance? If you could pick one thing that you think would be a process improvement, what might it be? I would say money. Yeah. Money distorts the candidates that we get in the end. And part of the problem is us. We want a president that we can have a beer with. It would be nice if that president we had a beer with is not of a beer-like mentality, okay? Because we don't want I, a president who's drunk. I don't think, I don't really care. Like, I want a president who feels human, and I think a president who is human, and who, who obviously so has emotions, has, I think that, who feels like they're genuinely, as I think it was uh, as Pat who said it, who actually connects with other human beings, I think that is how we end up picking presidents. I think the, mm. the beer with was such a good, it was such a good talking point that it stuck with us, like the economy's stupid, and it defines now our political viewpoint. But I generally don't want to, I don't want an overdrinker. It's not, it's not a key criteria <laughs> well, for me. 40, well, I think 45 could use some mood elevators. <laughs> yeah, he does. Apparently Donald Trump doesn't drink. I think Hitler didn't drink either. I, it's not, I'm not equating those two, but I am saying that I don't know if it's the best criteria. Well, it's the process, and I, 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 it's an ongoing discussion because I don't know the answer either. Okay. No, I think it's one of, I want, you know, Samuel Tarley wanted, wanted direct election. What they ended up doing was, at the end of Game of Thrones, was having the lords decide. There's decent argument, actually, for the way that the framers initially set it up. But I agree with you. If I could wave one magic wand in the process, it'd be the dough. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. So one of the things that I do, that I try to do, because I've decided, by the way, that I'm going to vote for who I think would make the best president. I think that's what I'm going to do. It might seem absurd. It might seem naive. Just me personally, instead of thinking like, well, who might like whom? Who might be friends with whom? Who might vote for whom? Instead, I, well, I just want to think about who do I think would be the best president? 
And that begs the question, well, what makes the best president? And that begs the question, how do we evaluate who would be the best president? Your structure of analysis might be different than mine, but that's mine. And so as I do that, as I try to think about who would make the best president, I try to think about how they think through problems. What do you think? We got callers on the line. We're going to take them. From Salem, Oregon. Will from Salem. Hello, Will. Hey, 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 Jefferson, how are you doing? You do a great job filling in for Tom. I just want to say, thank you. You're one of the best backups he has, I think, if not the best. Thank um, you. Really. What we need, in my opinion, we need, it's real simple. We need FDR. We need Franklin Roosevelt. Unapologetically and explicitly, I believe in Franklin Roosevelt policies, basically Keynesian economics, period, and we are going to tax the rich. Unapologetically, explicitly, there are a couple out there that fit that criteria. I think we all know who they are. Sure. And there are a bunch that don't fit that criteria. And I think we know who they are also. So. I, well, I got a follow-up question because I've wrestled with this. So the most impactful domestic president in America, heck, maybe the most impactful, I guess almost certainly, is there any argument? Most impactful 20th century president was FDR. Certainly in terms of shaping domestic policy. And I, then I had to remember, oh, wait, World War II also was FDR. So let's just, let's just assume you want an FDR president and that lots of people will agree with you. Do we think that has more to do, and this is going to sound like a real dumb question, but bear with me. Do we think that has more to do with policy or personality? When you said Keynesian economics, I'm pretty sure what you meant is somebody who has a bold vision for something akin to the New Deal that provides jobs, economic opportunity, that is willing to transform the American economy to rebuild the middle class. Is that, is that fair that that's a summation of sort of what you were going after? Yes, and the answer is both. We yeah. need both. We, Franklin Roosevelt was not only re really just, he had smart policies, and of course he had great people backing him up, but he was also a great politician, and he had a great sense of humor, and he was a smart guy. And you, you need both, and you need two things, right? You know this. If you want to sell a product, you need a good product, and you have to have, be a good salesperson. And Franklin Roosevelt was both. And, and I think we have a couple of candidates right now, I know we're not picking names here, that are really good at that in one particular. I mean, I don't know if, if it's going to offend you if I say who I believe that the main guy is, main person is. Yeah. I do think that we have, uh, well, I'll, I'll throw his name, his uh, initials are Bernie Sanders. I, <laughs> I, 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 think well, I don't know what that's, what does that stand for? What's the R in Bernie Sanders stand for? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But, uh, but, and, and, uh, but Elizabeth Warren is good, too. I, I, they're, they're great. Their policies are great. I think they sell well. I think Bernie Sanders is particularly a, a, yeah. a talented politician. So, so let, and, and, Will, thank you so much for the call, and thank you so much for listening, and also thanks for the kind word. We appreciate it. Uh, and I do want to respond. When I say personality, I don't mean to cheapen that, because I've thought about this, and, and I was not alive when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president. And there aren't that many, I suppose there are probably more radio recordings that I could listen to. I've certainly heard his voice. I've seen famous speech clips, but I'm not in that great a position to evaluate him. But I've done a bunch of reading, and I find a couple things interesting. One, that upon his nomination, at least one notable pundit, I don't think they called him pundits then, but described how uncharismatic, how sort of boring he was. That may have just been one view. I'm not in a position to evaluate. I thought his nothing to fear but fear itself line, of course, stood the test of history. But there were a few traits of Franklin Delano Roosevelt that I think seem really important that I will call out. I said the word personality, but I don't mean like, oh, would you want to have a fizzy water with him? And that is just internal fortitude, just courage, just strength. The willingness to wield power for the benefit of the public interest in the face of resistance from his own economic class. He was called a traitor to his class. 
I've even wondered if, don't have a conclusion, but if what are the various sources of that internal confidence? That he seemed willing to uh, be unfazed by things around him. That Maybe that's an underrated trait. He seemed disciplined towards his policy objective, brick by brick, building the New Deal. Not one speech and then, well, a, a law passes and you can go to say, oh, well, see, we passed a law on that, even though by the time the law got through the legislature, it was a piece of crap, as happens with so many laws now. That, that grit, and there are FDR scholars who could speak of it better than I have. And the reason I wonder if that was as important than his policy positions is because I so often think, I generally think, in fact, that presidential candidates, the politicians, are, in many respects, creatures of their context. That they are also often not the head of the snake, but one of its arms. I know snakes don't have arms. And therefore, the kind of leader there are might, they are might matter a lot. But let's get to another call. Colleen from Manorville, New York. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Jefferson. First time we're speaking to each other. Nice to get a chance to talk to you. I really called about the climate change, but I wanted to just quickly say when that man David called and said Eisenhower was such a good president. Um, I know that uh, later this month uh, a documentary is coming up about something called the Lavender Scare where Eisenhower went after people who are gay. It was disturbing, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. But as far as, and when I called up, they asked me, do you mean political climate? Or, you know, I said, no, like the earth. With all of the stuff that's being said, and it all is important, the reality is if people don't start taking climate change or climate emergency seriously, in 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's just going to be such a mute point. How do you evaluate that, right? What's, is there a particular bellwether, either how loudly they say it or how often they say it, or if they demand a climate debate, or if they say the words Green New Deal, is there a particular thing or a particular set of things that help you evaluate that? And the other question I had was, and you can answer that, or if you don't have a particular one, then what do you think it will take? What is your favorite move to help build national and international awareness for the need and translate that awareness into policy and personal choices? Well, you know, as many things are in life, it can be simple and complicated all at the same time. But the reality is that billionaires who are now controlling most of the earth are in the habit of buying and selling and getting their way with their wealth. And what they are either unwilling or unable to understand, and that's from the Walton family to the people in Russia who are, like, hiding money in other countries because they don't trust their own government. But all of this wealth is not going to do them any good if there's no food, if there is such havoc on the weather system. So you want to convince some billionaires to prioritize it? (laughs) That's not no, funny. I, 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 maybe it's funny, but I, I, I'm not. I'm not criticizing. No, I know that you're not. Take. No, I know you're not laughing. I'm. I'm kind of like laughing at the irony of the whole thing because the fact is they think they can buy their way out of any problem, yeah. and the reality is that. Um, and I'm looking at, for instance, one man who called up and Tom spoke to him said, "I used to clean my windshield. I'm a truck driver, and I used to clean my windshield two or three times, um, uh, and, and going back and forth across the country, and all the summer." I have in the last 10 years, I barely clean it once a summer. And I've noticed things like fireflies, which are missing. And and just as an aside, um, fireflies are the technology that LED lights 
were based on when MIT said, how do these, how do these bugs make light and not burn themselves up? Because yeah. they don't give off heat. Yeah. So, you know, so you have all these different species that are really important to the earth and they're being lost. But by the time these people get a grasp on this, it may be too late. Might be. And all, all of this conversation may be for nothing. Let's hope not. Colleen, thank you so much for calling. And I do say, if we live in an oligarchy, appealing to oligarchs is one of the moves. That's not fun to think about, but it's part of the reality, I think. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cyber crimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom Harmon. Democracy nerd. The reminder for us to go deep and even sometimes broad on what is impacting democracy. Not only taking our system for granted and then arguing about what we should do in the context of that system, but how do we have to improve that system, maintain its best parts, keep its best parts from being destroyed, and improve its worst parts. What's happening in the United States to erode democracy? And what can we do to thwart that or just to make democracy a little bit better? Joining us right now, Alex Shepard from the New Republic. His article, How Republicans Plan to Rig Elections for a Decade. New evidence confirming the Trump administration wants a citizenship question on the census for one reason, to suppress Latinx votes and voters. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex Shepard. You're on the air. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. It's good to be here. All right. So for people who missed it, offer this new evidence. We, uh, there's been some meaningful discussion about how the Trump administration pushed for the citizenship question to ask, hey, are you a citizen? Knowing that that, well, I shouldn't say knowing that, the accusation has been that was for with the motive of suppressing uh, Latino Latinx votes. You say there's new evidence. There is new evidence. Please explain. Yeah, I mean, so the citizenship question has been important to the Trump administration for quite some time now. It's been advocated by Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of the Commerce Department, since the first year of the Trump administration. Uh, now, the administration has insisted the entire time that the uh, reason to add the question, which was on the census uh, until 1950 when it was taken off, is to you know create a more accurate count so they could better enforce the Voting Rights Act. Now, you know, democracy advocates and Democrats have pointed out that this seems like a bad faith argument, to put it quite nicely. Uh, but the administration has... It's hogwash, and that puts it somewhat nicely. Yes, <laughs> there we go. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, the administration has continued to make it, including uh, before the Supreme Court earlier this year. Uh, now, uh, last week, uh, we got a twist that I think wouldn't be out of place in maybe a John Grisham thriller, which was that Thomas Hofeller, who's this really important figure in right-wing electioneering, a very big figure in gerrymandering and voter suppression. He's big in uh, gerrymandering. Everyone grows up wanting to be big in something. I don't know how many people yeah. grow up wanting to be big in gerrymandering, although it's Elbridge yeah. Gary, so I don't know how Gary feels about the pronunciation, but you go ahead. <laughs> The, uh, the New York Times referred to him, I believe, as the Michelangelo of gerrymandering. Uh, <laughs> That's he great. He passed away in 2017. Uh, his estranged daughter was given the keys to a storage locker in which he had a number of hard drives. And on these hard drives, they found documents that suggested he was involved in the push to add the census question with the express purpose of suppressing Latinx votes full stop, and that he had done studies to prove it, that these studies had been given to the Trump administration, uh, and that then the Commerce Department sort of began lobbying the Department of Justice, despite the fact that Wilbur Ross claimed that the opposite was true, uh, to, add, to add the question to the census. So, th- I mean, in, in a different world, let's go, let's go back before the dawn of the Federal Society, before the dawn of Fox News, before the dawn of right-wing talk radio, uh, before the dawn of uh, Koch uh, family investment into the right-wing conservative movement. Let's go back to, you know, like Richard Nixon's president, everything's great. No, wait a minute, everything wasn't great. But anyway, it was before all that stuff. This comes out, okay, and it's like, aha, see, that's a gun, it's smoking. It's clear. The jig is up. And the courts make it all clear. And democracy makes it all clear. And journalists make it all clear. And voters make it all clear. And that stuff can't happen anymore. And it's all clear. So I'm sure that's what's happening now. Now, 90% of Americans understand this is going on. The media is aligned to make sure of that. Congress is aligned to make sure that doesn't happen again. Everything's going to be okay, correct? Alex Shepard, everything's going to be fine now. Yes, that is exactly what is not happening right now. I mean, one of the issues of this, right, is that you know, Donald Trump is president who has a particular knack for uh, forgetting to, to say the subtextual stuff, right? He says the quiet part loud. We all know what's going on here. We've known what's going on with this question for two years. Now, the administration has been very willful in its refusal to acknowledge that. But, you know, even the Supreme Court is treating this as essentially a procedural and administrative question rather than one that's about the fundamentals of the health of American democracy. And I think, you know, there's something that's quite troubling about the fact that they're going to come down with a decision on uh, New York versus commerce sometime this year. And, you know, this this new evidence probably uh, won't impact it, although, you know, the ACLU is in federal court right now. And, and stick with that. It. it won't be, it won't impact it because it won't be admissible. It won't impact it or just won't impact it because the judges that were appointed and the justices that were appointed are in fact part of the project to erode democracy. Uh, the latter. I mean, they basically already accepted the, the sort of administrative and procedural arguments that the administration has made on this in this case. So I don't think that even if you show that those arguments are bunk, and in fact, you know, they're just a cover, and in fact that Thomas Hofeller designed them as a cover for this project, that it'll matter, because they've accepted those arguments on their merits. I think the other thing is that this is a court that's rolled back the Voting Rights Act because they said that we fixed the... Racism right, is racism. over. Yes. 
And what was the response to that? Well, a bunch of states, several dozen states, rolled out a bunch of voter suppression efforts. Now, if you think the Roberts Court has learned from that experience, I can't help you, but they're going to continue down this road for a long, long time, unfortunately. And this is why I say that what's happening now is not a game, and it's not just a partisan tug and pull, except to the degree that there has been one party that has been co-opted by the anti-small-D Democratic movement, that what really is happening, why I appreciate the new book by Caroline Fredrickson. I haven't read it. I still appreciate it just because of its title, The Democracy Fix, that's recognizing that it's Pollyannish to say we have to be above party, uh, because obviously party politics and the Republican Party itself, we have to be willing to name that, I think. But do I overstate it? Somebody who thinks I'm an alarmist would just say, well, you are an alarmist. You're, you're just chicken little. To me, it does seem that the project that is going is the undermining of democracy. Tell me if I am overstating the case. No, I mean, I think, I think that you might be understating it. I mean, I think that it's also... It's a bipartisan problem, too, right? I mean, one of the factors that was behind the rise of Donald Trump was people feeling disempowered, right? Now, some of that is obviously because of racial resentment, which is horrific. But there's another aspect of it in which Democratic or the very fundamental aspects of democracy have eroded all over the country. Corporations have an immense amount of power. People's wages have been lowered, you know, for those reasons. And they feel like they didn't have a voice in fixing these things. Now, the other side of that project is this long-term Republican one where there was a point at which the party got together and said, well, we've got two options here. We can either embrace immigration reform, we can continue to make our deeply unpopular but firmly held arguments about free enterprise, or we can become the party of white people in this country and do everything that we can to stay that way. And Donald Trump cemented that, but over the last five years, particularly... Alex, have you read Democracy in Chains, Nancy Plain's book? I interviewed Nancy. Wonderful book. Make everybody read it, please. It's really the only book I've ever said everybody's got to read it. Everybody's got to read it. I'm going to say it every time I have a chance. Alex Shepard, thank you so much. New Republic, newrepublic.com. This is Tom's show. I'm Jefferson. You're you. We love you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And we're back. It is time for with great fanfare bob can you say nay talk media talk media news.com how you doing sir we're going to talk about the news what's good out there or what's bad out there i'll let you judge whether it's good or bad all right i'll just tell you what just I know. the facts okay. from you all right tariffs first if we could go to the tariffs because there is a threat by the president to put on 300 billion dollars worth of tariffs on china and of course the president really received the votes of the people of Pennsylvania and a few of the other electoral college states because he did have a platform of taking on China. And in the past, a lot of the candidates would say they would, and and then they didn't. Something happened. So now the president's in a full-fledged tariff war, which has a lot of pain to it, obviously. So the, the another round of the volley is $300 billion. The Chinese have responded that they're going to go across the board unilateral. So stay tuned for that one and see what happens on it. A lot of the candidates have not weighed in particularly either way, although the Republicans 
who are real free traders are tending to be extremely angry. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because a Democratic candidate has at least two tensions. One tension is to criticize the president. Another tension mm-hmm. is to figure out the dance on trade, where you're always having to navigate. Any Republican is a little bit easier. They just, well, whatever the Chamber of Commerce says. For a Democrat, they have to sort of navigate betwixt conflicting economists and what some of their corporate allies and some of their labor allies might say. It's sort of a trickier dance. That's correct. And when it came to Bernie Sanders, he was clear on trade. And frankly, a lot of the union people I had talked to during the election, just to reach out to see what they thought, were leery of Hillary Clinton because they felt she would support certain things once she got in office that would be against her interests. And so that was a big deal. So now Trump has to follow through one way or the other on that, although he's getting torn because people are all over him about the farming community and what the tariffs are doing to the average Americans. And it's a real weird, the political dynamic here, Bob, is really interesting, right? Like, does the Democrat come out and say, I'm going to stand with American workers by maintaining Trump tariffs? Or (laughs) am I going to do something different than that? I know that tea leaves, you, you tend to not take the bait at my tea leaves question, but what would be your advice to a person trying to win the Democratic primary and win the presidency? Well, I would be definitely on the side of doing something for the working people by pushing back at China and other countries that have helped to rob us of our economy. You know, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of other reasons we've been robbed, but it's part of it. If you just look at the difference with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders on the issue, Bernie was very clear-cut where he stood on that, and people were suspicious of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Now, the court's still going to be out on Trump, but if I were the Democratic candidate, I would make it very clear that you know, you don't think that Trump handles these things the right way. He's too bombastic. But the fact remains, we have to stand up to these countries for working people. I think that would be the narrow pathway for them to manage. It's so interesting to me because I see this, on one hand, a rebalancing of our trade relationship with China could have a lot of benefits. I also see it through a lens of global relationships. If we are tearing asunder our relationship with China, while the Western alliance is also starting to fray, also while Great Britain is trying to exit, and it looks like Vladimir Putin would benefit from all of those things, it makes me nervous about some of the trade negotiations and some of the motive behind the trade negotiations. So I find it interesting. But anyway, anything else on that or what's the next story? Well, yes, on that, Jefferson, because you made some really great points on this, some fine lines to walk through. But then if I were a Democratic candidate, I would be attacking the president because he's using tariffs to change internal policy of a country, and that's in regards to Mexico and the undocumented workers that potentially come in our country. That's not what terrorists were designed for, and he's actually defeating the purpose because he got a deal with Mexico and Canada. Now he's using tariffs as a punitive measure for a public policy, and that's where I think he can be hit very hard. Yes. Democratic candidates who support fair trade have turned on the president on this issue because the president is being punitive and he's mixing apples with oranges on that. Indeed. Another place I think they go after him, and this is maybe my deepest critique, is for a weak term, but is timing. That doing this right on the heels of the Republican tax cut, on the tax cut at the upper income levels, and thereby jacking up the deficit. And if we poke a hole in the overinflated economic balloon with overinflated stock values, and we and that and the 
and the needle we use to pop that balloon is in fact jacking up tariffs, is in fact a multilateral trade war, and we don't have uh, high interest rates that we can lower to help rebalance the economy if we pop the balloon, and we don't have reserves that we can spend or at least untapped debt that we can spend in right. order to get us out of that, it is economic malpractice to do all of those things simultaneously. And, and that's why, to me, the tariffs, economically speaking, make me real nervous. Right. And also, his timing is bad on Mexico. Look, he just did a deal with Canada Mexico, the, quote, revision of NAFTA. Then he has to mix it all up with a lot of cloudy communication and talk when he tries to use the tariffs against Mexico on the undocumented immigrants. Yeah. Let me ask, when you were thinking about who you'd support, maybe as you think about it now, though now you're sort of more sitting in a journalism seat, but back right. in the day when you were sitting in a congressional seat, or even before that, how would you evaluate your choice for president? Or how do you think sure. people should be evaluating their choices for the president? Well, I think there's one big choice. For example, let me use a concrete example. When I was looking at John McCain or Barack Obama, you have to ask yourself, first of all, because of human life, which one is going to get you most likely into a war that's an unneeded war? I think I can answer that question, the late Senator John McCain. I think that was the number one I started out with criteria. Then there are other issues. No, but that's, that's a great one. Bob Ney, thank you so much. Thank you. And here is, here is one of the Watch Your Language segments for the day. And this is one of my, we'll call it original. I didn't hear it from anybody else. I didn't steal it. So I guess it's original. Barack Obama and Ezra Klein and many in the center-left establishment who I know and love have been making the case for two years that one of the big problems of Donald Trump is that he has been violating norms. When Barack Obama had a chance to meet with Donald Trump, when Donald Trump had just been sworn in, he said, you got to be aware there's laws, yes, but there's also norms. So much of the criticism of Mitch McConnell has been that, well, he's violating norms when I think it was the North Carolina legislature threw out the powers of their new big D Democratic executive after his election. Uh, they said, well, it's violating norms. Geez, we got to do something about norms. I agree that it is concerning that our norms are being eroded. I don't think we should merely call them norms. For multiple reasons that are kind of obvious. Hashtag watch your language. And that is one. I mean, you know, the more popular norm is actually the guy in the TV show Cheers. Yeah, if, you, if we ask what the heck is a norm, I had people answer the question. I don't think everybody's dumb dumb. But, you know, it varies the definition of the term. It's not something we talk about when we're talking to our families. Hey, let's make sure that we stick up with the family norms when we're in school, trying to keep things together or on a team or in our place of work. Hey, everybody, we have norms here. Got to follow the norms. And we don't meet a group of people in the break room. It's called principles. It's called principles, because we know what principles are. We can disagree on what those principles should be, but we know what principles are, and we think there should be principles. And when Mitch McConnell steals a Supreme Court seat, it is not merely non-normative. It is not merely abnormal. It is unprincipled. When Donald Trump doesn't make sure that the actual governing apparatus of the country 
Does it ensure that there are people in place to make sure regulatory agencies can do their jobs? That is not merely a violation of some norm. That is a violation of principle. It's bad on principle. That the debate about a legislature stripping powers from an executive merely because that person is in the wrong party, not because there is, in fact, conduct that is impeachable, that should be based on principle, not merely a norm, whether it's in North Carolina or whether it's in the United States of America. And that we should be talking about principles. And how is this connected to my weird topic, the King of England? I know it's now Queen of England and soon will be again. I'm not, well, let's not say soon. Hopefully no time soon. Everybody loves Queen Elizabeth. She seems like a marvelous person. But will again be a King of England? That... Part of what is going on in India is a forgetting of principle, a principle of democracy, a principle of pluralism, a principle of freedom of religion, a principle of we're stronger together than we are apart, a principle that is shared that fascism is a really bad idea, a principle that inherited power and wealth should be significantly limited because otherwise it's just tyranny. And these are not merely norms. Because guess what? A lot of people aren't that big a fan of what's normal right now. What's normal for so many people ain't that good. And that's true across many political persuasions. What's normal doesn't feel that good. We've got the biggest wealth disparities in 100 years. We can't even call it weather anymore. It's freaking bleak. Oh, let's get back. Let's, let's have what's normal. I don't know. Normal? Let's work for what's good, or it would be better, it would be right, it would be just. Let's fight for principles, not just norms. Hashtag, watch your language. And that's why, to me, it is connected to some of the symbolism stuff. That's why it is worth us getting to first principles and talking about, what are we doing here in the first place? Is this just a show so people can watch some stuff and listen to some stuff as we head towards oblivion? Or are we participants in democracy? Are we going to try to make the country and the world a little bit better? Is that a project that could give meaning to our collective lives? Is that a reason to keep doing stuff after we've paid our bills? I think it is. I think those principles are worth doing. I think that the production team that puts on this show isn't just doing a job. They're part of a calling. I think if you listen to this show, you can be listening to a lot of things, I hope, is because we have a collective calling, and that's to make democracy better. And we have to fight for those basic, hopefully build towards those basic principles, because they've been taken for granted. My uncle's a wonderful guy. I love him. We have different politics. And to his credit, I really think it's to his credit, he gets viral emails, and he sends them to me. But he doesn't just say, Jeff, my liberal nephew... Will you agree with me that the previous one I got and talked about it on the air was that uh, uh, that Muslims are going to take over the government of the United States? We're going to have Sharia law in the United States of America. And what I appreciated about forwarding me that email was he said, what do you think? Is there any truth to this? And I spent more time than I would have otherwise like actually responding and offering a bunch of math and a bunch of legitimate links. The more recent one was about uh, the ship Maersk, which, well, it's empty, and that means we have a trade deficit with China, but it means we're shipping nothing to China. Turns out that was from 2011. Daily Coast had debunked it eight years ago. 
but it does remind me, let's talk to our families, not because we're going to fundamentally change everybody, but because a little bit at a time, I think we can educate one another and make our democracy a little stronger. To the Tom Hartman program. I'm Jeff. Holly tweeted in, noticing a lot of war and attacks today. That means to me foreign and domestic voter interference has begun attacking those they fear the most. Uh, I, what I appreciate is that members of our community are starting to be more aware of the media context, including the social media context, understanding that bots on the left and the right, or you know, lots of fake accounts, lots and lots of Twitter accounts run by fewer and fewer people that were targeting Hillary Clinton using misogyny, at the very least, as an under current, uh, her emails, her broad set of relationships, in other ways to critique her, and there are, of course, ways to critique her. Uh, and I think us, without making particular comment on any particular candidate, uh, I want the whole team to flourish here, the, uh, uh, that I do think it's good for us to be aware of what's happening in the media context. Uh, we had so much great interaction today. Uh, Janet wanted to know, what are they doing locally to build strength, understanding what Jane also said, that we need not a savior, this needs to be about the people. People, that no person will be able to do this alone. No one will be the full snake, whether the head or the rattler. Dave wanted to make sure that they break precedent, uh, the Reagan precedent, and actually be willing to prosecute former administration officials if prosecution was avoided merely because the president was in office at the time. John says, make sure you do like Sherrod Brown does and connect a policy to how it hurts and how it helps and really connected to people. Pierre and Liz and Colleen and so many more said climate change, climate change, climate change, climate change. Jacob said something that was really wise, I thought, really helped me and said, don't think of climate change as an issue. Think about it, the lens through which we need to evaluate all of our choices and the candidates that do that, that's the best way to evaluate if they're real on that more than an issue. Pat wanted to understand how they're going to solve the problem of isolation, how they connect with other people. Mark wanted to do a lie detector and an IQ test, which is a little bit like William wanted to do a psych test. I wanted to see if they own a pet. It's not the most important thing. I was just curious. I also wanted to understand how they would wield the regulatory apparatus, how they would run the economy, and not just by rewarding the powerful at the expense of the powerless. Michael wanted determination like FDR. Linda wanted a candidate who was open-minded with people of faith. Gene wanted to look at voting records. Adam wanted a strong stance on hate groups and more. There were so many more from Michelle to Annette to Carol to Liz. We appreciate you all. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Without you, democracy is not possible. So many of these things are in such an important sense, nobody's job. Whose job is it to fix the climate? Whose job is it to fundamentally transform our transportation system? Whose job is it to save democracy? So many of these things in a market sense are nobody's job. That's why they have to be all of our jobs. And that's why you are so important. That's why I am so appreciative of spending some time with you. The coalition of the benevolently irrational. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Love you. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.